In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on Monday night's show is Grit by Angela Duckworth. Grit, the power of passion and perseverance. And um, this book is a really interesting book about how we tend to think about talent or natural ability as the important thing to make people successful or good at something, but really it's not that. It's much more about the hard work you put in. And and she talks about this concept of grit, which is passion and perseverance together, which is what really leads to people becoming successes rather than just having some natural talent and ability. And this is actually great news for all of us because it means you're not just stuck being as good as you think you are or limited by some natural gifts. We have to develop them and there's hope for all of us. So she talks about what grit is and then also how you can develop it. So I'm looking forward to finishing the book and sharing it with you on Monday's show. Um, I wanted to start off the show today on Monday nights. Very often I'll ask people to suggest topics for the show and thank you to everyone who sent those in i got many of them one of which i talked about monday night but one i also got was overcoming the fear of public speaking by i believe it was reza um, who suggested that so thank you for that suggestion and so i did want to talk a bit about that so the fear of public speaking it's um, a very common fear and actually jerry seinfeld had a, a funny joke about that where he said according to most studies people's number one fear is public speaking number two is death death is number two does that sound right this means to the average person if you go to the funeral you're better off in the casket than doing the eulogy so it's kind of a funny joke which points at how it's interesting how we'd be more afraid to be speaking in front of people than to actually die Um, but it just shows how much We are a social species and how much we care about the opinions of others. And it's very easy advice to tell people don't care what other people think. And yes, that's good to do that less, to not care so much. But of course, we all do care. And so when we're asked to speak in front of a group of people, we can feel anxiety. And so some of that anxiety, when we talk about fear of public speaking, to some degree is normal to feel some level of being nervous. It doesn't mean it has to be overwhelming or has to make it so you can't um, follow through with whatever it is you need to do, but we can understand that. And so I say this so we recognize, okay, at some level, there's some part of it that's natural. So if you have some fear of public speaking, 
It doesn't mean something is wrong with you or that you are a problem or that your fear is somehow real and that you should be afraid of what's going on. We can understand that it's a natural feeling to have to not be so comfortable to speak in front of a lot of people. And so before I get into the specifics of public speaking um, and the anxiety and fear that comes with that, just a little bit about fears and anxiety in general. Because we have anxiety, or when we experience anxiety, what it tells us is that something that we're about to face or something we're thinking about, it, we should worry about it, or we should be concerned or plan or prepare for it. And when we feel something, it feels very real. So if you have a fear of public speaking, you think it means something scary is about to happen. When, of course, nothing really scary can happen. The worst that can happen is you don't do a good job and people might think some things about you or might not like you very much, but nothing that bad can happen. But the fear feels very real, like something terrifying is happening. That's what phobias are in general. We get this feeling of overwhelming fear that something bad is going to happen, something disastrous, we're really in danger, when usually it's not the case. So in general, fears are, in a way, our, way, our brain's way of preparing us or protecting us when really there's not much to protect us from. Most things you are anxious about are an exaggeration of the actual threat. You worry too much about something, and then when it actually happens, you realize it's not that big of a deal. So another example of this is procrastination. A lot of times people think we procrastinate because we're lazy or don't have good work ethic. That could be a small fraction of it, but usually the bigger contributor is things like anxiety about performance or perfectionism or other things that make it so we're afraid to get started. But then usually once you end up doing the thing, you are procrastinating, you see it wasn't as scary as you made it out to be. It's kind of like uh, as a kid, you imagine a monster is underneath your bed and in your mind it's this big scary monster and it's so scary and you don't know what it's going to do to you and you feel all afraid. And then if you look under the bed, you see it's there's nothing to be afraid of. It's not so scary. So in general, our fears and our anxiety builds things up in a way it thinks we can almost think of it as our brain's way of trying to protect us from something that isn't that scary. So in general, our feelings do this. It's almost like a protective thing. Even pain, physical pain is that way. Um, people who run ultra marathons or who push themselves really hard, uh, push their bodies in ways that most people wouldn't do, they'll recognize that when your body starts to hurt a lot and even gives you this message that it can't take any more, that really just means it's at maybe 30% or 40% of what it can do. Because your body's pain is in a way trying to protect you from hurting yourself. So it's going to tell you to stop sooner than you need to stop. So if you really want to push your body all the way, as hard as it can go, you're going to have to override some of that pain or that message that your body is giving you that you can't do anymore. Your body is trying to protect you, so it's being a little bit on the conservative side, saying, you know what, this is it. We can't do anymore. The muscles are about to give out. But really, you can push through that or overcome that. So the same thing is going to be true when it comes to a fear of public speaking. Any of the solutions that you're going to come up with or whatever you end up doing, it doesn't mean the fear is going to go away, that you're going to have no fear. But what you're going to have to do is feel some fear and do it anyway. So 
a lot of people think, okay, I have a fear of public speaking, so what I should do is work on this fear and maybe even go to therapy, do meditation, try various techniques until I have no fear and no anxiety, and then I can go try public speaking. But if we do that, you're never going to end up doing it because your fear will probably never be at zero. Even some level of anxiety, as I was mentioning before, is understandable, expected, and maybe even natural to have about public speaking. So you have a little bit, that's okay. Or even you have a lot, it could be okay, you can still do it anyway. So that's one thing to keep in mind when you're trying to overcome any type of fear or anxiety is that the goal can't be to get to zero or to think you can get to zero anxiety or fear. It's just not going to happen. And if you approach it with that mindset, you'll never, never go forward. And that's what anxiety does. It encourages us to avoid something, whatever it is we're anxious about. You have a fear of flying, your anxiety is going to make you want to avoid flying. But we know that the only way to overcome it is to face it. So one way to overcome your fear of public speaking is actually going to be to put yourself in situations where you are doing public speaking. You have to actually try it. You have to go ahead and go through it to see that it's not as scary as you think. And even after doing it many times, you might still have some fear but it can become less and you'll be more used to facing it. Even there's a lot of performers, singers, actors who have stage fright. You might be shocked to hear that someone who's performing night after night gets nervous before they perform, but still they do it. So a big message here is overcoming your fear of public speaking doesn't mean making the fear go to zero. It means having the fear, but doing it anyway. You have to go forward anyway, even if you're afraid. Now, there are some things you can do with public speaking. One is try to understand where it's coming from. Again, some part of it is natural, but for a lot of people, due to issues they might have to their own self-esteem or especially fears of looking stupid or embarrassing themselves or different things, this can become exaggerated. So they have such a strong fear of looking bad, looking dumb, um, looking funny, or it could be something about their physical appearance that they feel that it makes them more anxious. And again, these things are usually bigger in our head than they are in real life, but it's something to look at. And of course, if you're worried about looking stupid to other people, that means at some level, you probably don't feel very good about yourself in this way. And so you have to look at that. Do I feel that I'm lacking in some way? Or do I have a lack of confidence in my intelligence or whatever else it might be I'm afraid to look at? So there can be some benefits of looking at some of the thoughts that are contributing or exaggerating the anxiety. Things like cognitive behavioral therapy can be very helpful with this, of understanding some of the assumptions we're making or the thoughts we're having that are contributing to what we're going through. Now, there's other things you can do if you do have a fear of public speaking and you're actually going to go give a talk. Um, for example, if you can go to the place where you're going to talk before, that can be good to make yourself comfortable there. So don't just show up the day of the event because the new environment is going to feel uh, or contribute to your anxiety. If you can go before, go. Stand even where you're going to talk. Get comfortable. Get used to the environment. Even if it's a place you've never been before, when you go there, at least you understand the parking and the driving there. That'll make you a little bit less anxious, so you won't worry about those things as much. But those things can be very helpful. Another thing, of course, is to prepare, which sounds... Um, almost counter or so simple that if you think anyone would do it, but sometimes people who have a fear of public speaking or a fear of something, they avoid 
preparing because it makes them feel anxious. Because when they start looking at their speech, they start thinking about the actual speech and they get more nervous, so they avoid it. So you also want to prepare in a way, almost over-prepare, so that you have comfort with the material you're going to present. Because if you don't, then you're going to be even more anxious once you get there. Um, and then related to that, you also, what can help is to really have your introduction very close to memorized. By that, I mean, we know that when you start talking, you're going to be more nervous. And once you get into the flow, that can sometimes make things a lot easier. So you want to prepare yourself by having the beginning of what you're going to say feel very comfortable for you. So it doesn't take a lot of thought for you. And even if you are anxious, you can get through it anyway. Other important things is if you're speaking in front of people, generally, if you have a fear of anxiety, and most people will have this anyway, we tend to think that people are more bored or less interested in what we're saying than is actually the case, especially if you have a fear uh, and anxiety about public speaking. Because even when people are enjoying your talk, they're not going to be nodding their heads and jumping up and down and showing you these big demonstrative signs that they're interested. They're just going to be looking and listening, which might look like they're bored, but that's how people look. And so I've even experienced it myself that after a talk where I thought it was pretty good or okay, people came and they said it was very good or they really enjoyed it and they got so much out of it, but their reactions weren't so much. So you have to be ready that if you're trying to get a lot from their reactions, usually that's not the case especially if it's a more serious topic, you're not going to get strong reactions from people. So you have to just expect that I'm going to present what I have to present and that's going to be it. But don't expect them to be giving you so much positive feedback. Most people just look. I know that people who sometimes give talks themselves, you'll see them in the audience nodding along because they know what it's like to be speaking. But in general, people aren't going to give you much feedback. So you have to be ready for that as well. But just remember that you're probably going to feel nervous anyway, but that's okay. You just want to go forward even if you are nervous. Um, prepare is important. Get there if you can, all those types of things. But to expect to have no anxiety when you're speaking is probably never going to happen. And that's true of anything we're afraid of. At some level, you have to take that leap. You can't wait until the fear is zero because there's almost nothing where the fear is going to be zero. Um, another important thing that can help is remember why you're doing the public speaking. If it has some meaning or special purpose to you, that can help you remember that bigger picture goal. There's a lot of people who have wanted to make a big public change in, let's say, something in society or uh, wanted to be an advocate for some group or make some kind of impact. And even if they were nervous about public speaking because they had something bigger, they were able to overcome that. Just like if you had a fear of swimming, but you saw your baby in the water, you'd probably still jump in and try to figure it out because something much more important, your baby is there and you're willing to put that fear away. So when you have a bigger mission, or maybe not mission is the right word, but purpose or meaning in what you're doing, that can help. Even if it's you're at school and you say, you know what? Getting a good grade because of my future is important. Having that bigger picture in mind can help you face that fear or at least do it anyway. You know, I'm nervous, but I know I want to graduate to then go to law school to then do this and do that. So I got to do this talk for class tomorrow. Or I want to promote this message. And instead of getting focused on yourself and the self-conscious part about how am I going to look, 
how is it going to go? What are they going to think of me? Remember that message you're trying to share. I want to make sure people know about this. I want to raise awareness about this. I want to inform people or teach people, whatever it might be. You know, even as a teacher, I want the kids to learn or I want the students in whatever age group they are to learn these things. That's more important than just how I'm going to perform. So it's good if we can get ourselves out of the self-conscious mindset of just thinking about us and how is it going to go and what are they going to think of me to whatever the bigger uh, picture goal is, something more important, the message, the meaning, the purpose behind it. That can also be helpful. So remind yourself, why am I doing this? That can also be helpful as well. But again, the bottom line is fear of anything. It means you have to do it even though you're afraid. So fear of public speaking means you're never going to get to zero fear. You're going to have to go forward anyway. But you can think about things and prepare a little bit to make it easier. And at the end of the day, be afraid and go forward anyway. So thank you uh, for that question from, I think it was Arshia, but also said Reza on his name. But thank you for that suggestion on Instagram. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Wanted to get to some other questions that were suggested suggested on Instagram. Um, this one was from Amir Sano, actually a friend of mine, um, but he responded to the uh, post I had on Instagram. He wrote, how to reduce the usage of social media and go back to some of the old ways. Um, and I think that's a, a great topic because so many people feel that they're using their phones and using social media too much, but it's very hard to stop and it can be very addicting. And I think the addiction label that is coming out for things like video games, absolutely. And even phones, I think is very appropriate because it does serve the function of lots of addictions, which is to distract us or numb us. And also it can be very interfering with our lives, especially our relationships. So um, I'll talk about that social media and just the phones in general and listeners to the show might remember last year I did a book mindful tech uh, by David Levy and actually was very fortunate to have the author David Levy join me via telephone um, to talk about his book but I highly recommend that book for anyone um, who's thinking the same thing that Amir Sano is thinking of using technology using things too much. And the whole point of that book, uh, the premise, which I liked was that it's not that technology is bad. Of course, it's not all bad, but it's not all good uh, either. The important thing is how we use it can make it better or worse or have a positive effect or negative effect in our lives. So in being mindful, and the, the title mindful tech is that we have to be aware of why we are using the phone so much or using technology and social media so much. We always want to look at the why. And that to me is so important um, in anything we're doing. But if we look at social media, you have to always think about what's my intention? Why am I posting something? Of course, we can talk about just going on social media. But when it comes to posting, you got to ask yourself the why. Sometimes it's really just I want to share things with friends and family so they know and can see what's going on in my life, just like I like to know and see what's going on in their lives. And that could be a more um, beneficial type of a intention. But sometimes we're on there, we're trying to get attention from people, even strangers, trying to get their approval. 
or we're not feeling good about ourselves. And so we want to get some attention. So we want to get some likes and follows and comments to get a little boost of self-esteem. One of the lines I like to say is that likes and follows are the new drugs of the digital age. People feel bad. People feel down about their lives and they post a picture or post something to try to get some attention. And momentarily they feel good like a drug. They get this rush of dopamine and good feelings from that. But of course it's going to go away for multiple reasons. One is that it's going to be short-lived and also very often we're posting things, pictures, videos, or uh, an image of ourselves that isn't fully who we are. It's photoshopped and uh, has filters on and all sorts of things. And so we know it's not actually us, but we just want to get this rush of positive feeling, but it's not going to last very long. So we have to really look at why am I using uh, social media? What am I doing with it? People use it to promote themselves or their careers and things. That could be a very different intention. Or you might feel like you're not being yourself, and that's not going to feel very good. People can get very focused on creating a certain image of themselves on the Internet and get obsessed with that, but they forget about living their own lives and being themselves and who they are. And that even if their image gets a lot of attention, they're not going to feel good about that long term because they know it's not about them. Just like if we're meeting someone new and we present ourselves in a totally different way than who we are, even if we start to get some attention and feel some love from them, it's not going to feel very good because we know that they're not loving the actual us. So people can get so obsessed with creating an image online and the attention that that gives them, but they don't feel very good about it long term because they know it's not actually them that's getting the attention. It's this image who is really not them, but some kind of Uh, idealization of themselves that they are creating. So we have to be very aware of what we're doing online and with social media. Be mindful of it. And that's what I liked about that book, Mindful Tech, was to really look at how you're using email even, but um, social media, your phone, and how much it's hurting or helping you. Because we know the phone can be a very distracting thing. Even I was talking about a study recently of even if your phone is off, but you can see a phone, it's going to distract you or make you less focused than if that phone is not even present. Um, Or if you see a laptop, even it can have that same effect. So we know that the phones can be very distracting. And so it's up to us to set some limits on ourselves. We know that if we leave it just to whenever we want to use it, we'll probably use it too much. Just like with our kids. Um, If you give a kid an iPad, they'll want to play with it all day. It's very stimulating. It's very exciting. It keeps their attention. But we know it's not good for them. So we have to limit what we allow for them to use. But even though we might think, well, I'm not a kid anymore. I shouldn't have to set limits. But we have to know we have to set limits on ourselves, just like you might do with other things, with TV or what you eat or what else you do with your money. Um, You have to be aware of what you're doing. And we have to set limits on ourselves because we know that it can be hard to limit what we do with different things in different ways. Now, another big thing for me when it comes to social media or using our phones especially is looking at the purpose of what you're doing when you're just on there. So I was talking about what you post, and I think that's very important to look at. Why am I posting what, what I'm posting? But also, why am I on Instagram right now or on Facebook? Maybe a little bit of it is to connect to people, but the vast majority of the time, that I observe and even I've experienced it myself, but especially 
um, with people I've worked with is that we go on to these things and we use our phone to distract ourselves, not to actually serve some important function. We have something we need to do or we really want to know, but just to distract ourselves from actually feeling our own feelings and being in touch with ourselves. And I think this is one of the biggest negatives that we're seeing is that with the use of our phones and social media, we're getting away from ourselves more and more. And in a way, we're also looking at other people's lives more, but we're getting more and more away from ourselves. So most people, if you see them at a restaurant, if they're waiting for someone, instantly, as soon as they sit down, they take out their phone. It's not even a moment that they'll sit and look around and be more present, take in the environment. Instantly, they go to their phone to go check something, look at something. Usually, again, it's not they have something to do, like they have a task to take care of. Most of the time, it's just a waste time. And you could leave it at that and say, I'm just wasting time on my phone. But I would ask you to think a little bit more deeply of what, why you're wasting your time in that way. Because I know we've all been there where you go to your Instagram for the 10th time in an hour and nothing's even changed, but you keep looking at the same posts just to look. And we are trying to get away from what we're feeling. Because very often there are some feelings we have that we don't like, that aren't very pleasant. If we sit alone with our thoughts, we start, might start to worry about something. Or we might feel some sadness or loneliness that is there that we don't want to feel. And we'd rather just distract ourselves. And I'm not saying that sadness or loneliness is a good thing. But we want to be aware of what we're experiencing and what we're feeling because it's giving us information. I was talking before about our feelings, and yes, they can be exaggerated in a way to protect us, but there's still something there. If you're sad, you want to try to understand that information. Just like if your leg is hurting, you want to feel that pain so you realize something is not right. Either you have to deal with an injury, you have to take it easy, you have to maybe even see a doctor, but you have to feel that pain to know what's going on. We need to feel that emotional pain or whatever we're feeling as well to know what's happening for us. So it is important. This is why meditation can be so helpful is because it does, um, you know, sometimes people say disconnect to connect. So you don't, you disconnect from your technology to connect to yourself. And that's one of the biggest things I think the cell phone has done is that although we use it in some ways to connect to other people more, even though that I can talk about is not exactly a deep connection, but we're disconnecting from ourselves much more than we were before. Because even in my lifetime, of course, there weren't smartphones the way they are now. And people would have to just be alone and be with their thoughts a lot more than they were. And I think that was actually a good thing. We're getting much more disconnected from ourselves. So you have to also ask yourself that about the way you're using your phone. Is it leading to more connection or more disconnection in your life? And that is both connection to other people, but also connection to yourself. Because if every time you're alone, you take out your phone just to look at things, you're not spending as much time alone with yourself, which might sound strange, but it's definitely something that is a real thing we have to be aware of. You have a relationship with yourself, and you can actually be closer and further away from yourself. Many people are very out of touch with their feelings. They have no idea why what they're feeling, and because of that, a lot of times they don't know why they're doing what they're doing. They might be angry, but they don't realize it. And they say something in a more harsh way, but they didn't realize it was because they were angry about something else that just happened. They were out of touch. And now they think it's because of what's happening in that moment or they're feeling sad and that affects the way they interact. But also we know that phones 
although we think it's making us connect with more people, it definitely is causing a lot of disconnection in our relationships as well. Very often people are sitting with someone and then they're texting other people. And the funny thing is if they were probably sitting with that person they were texting, maybe they would be then texting the person they were at that time with. So it's this feeling of we'd rather not be as intimate with the person next to us, but we take this superficial connection instead. And that's something that people are doing. We're creating a lot of superficial connections, texting with six different people at the same time. And you see this especially in the younger generation where they'll be on Snapchat and talking to five different people at the same time. And it's just a constant stream of back and forth that they're having. And so they might feel like they're being very social and very connected, but it's a very shallow connection that they're creating with lots of people. You maybe experience this in your own life. You can maybe look at your phone and be like, oh, I texted with 12 different friends today from morning till night, but you never had a phone call with anyone or a face-to-face -face conversation with any of those people. And you'll probably feel a lack of connection. You won't feel like you've really connected with anyone that day because you just sent a few texts. It can be nice, a very uh, surfacey type of a connection, but it doesn't create the deep connection that is more important. So you have to make an effort to do these things because the trend is we're going towards everything happening via text, everything happening um, social media and talking in these more surface type of ways. If you want to connect in a more deep way, uh, Amir Sano suggested he, in his question about going to the old ways, you have to go back to those old ways of just talking face to face, of having a conversation in that way where you're talking to someone and looking each other in the eyes and, and conversing and sharing things and, and opening up. That's something that I think never will be able to be replaced by anything else. Now, FaceTime makes that easier when people are far away, but even that's different than talking actually face-to-face -face in person. But we have to be aware that if we don't make an effort, if we just go with the trend of what's happening, you're going to keep getting more and more disconnected from each other. And couples come in all the time to therapy, and a big thing that almost happens in every couple at some point is this feeling of, I feel like you're on your phone too much. And we do need to be on our phones sometimes, that's okay, but there is this more connect disconnection that is happening in relationships because people are spending too much time on their phones. And sometimes it's because they want to distract themselves, but also a lot of times it's to avoid the intimacy of being close to that person who's in the room with them. And that's what we have to be aware of. When someone says you're on your phone too much, of course, the general reaction is to get defensive. But if we pay attention, usually what we'll recognizes that the person is telling us, I don't feel so connected to you. And you have to then ask yourself, is there some reason why I'm choosing to disconnect from the person who's right next to me by distracting myself with my phone? Why would I choose to do that? Is it because I don't feel good with the person I'm with? I'm upset about something. Is it that I'm afraid to get close to this person? So I'm choosing to distract myself, but there is something going on. It is important for us to think about that. So to Amir Sano's question of how can we um, use social media and I added technology less and go back to the old ways, the first thing we have to do is be mindful and aware of what are we doing? What is the purpose with everything that we do in general, but especially when we're using our phones and social media? What am I getting out of this that makes me keep going to this? And what am I avoiding? And for me, the bottom line is always to make sure that we're using technology more to connect than to disconnect to connect to ourselves and to the people around us and also to make sure that we're uh, not getting disconnected from those people. That's the most important thing. Technology is a great tool. 
if it's used in the right way, but also can be a tool that leads to a lot of damage and disconnection. So thank you, Daimir Sano, for that question and everyone else who suggested uh, topics for the show. But let's go to our next commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, Dr. Fahid. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for calling. I appreciate you. I just want to say thank you for for all the sessions that um, you're actually giving us the opportunity to listen to. It's My like, pleasure. It's, it's like a rope for dragging and taking us <laughs> to, the, to the goal and to the point that you want us to you know, make sure you understand it. So I'm really thankful for it. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, actually, my question is about my 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 baby boy who is um, a year and a half, and mm-hmm. um, of course, I as a parent, I definitely want him to have as little as possible a screening time. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's hard to avoid it, especially when he actually sees us be using our phone, or you know, sometimes you know, like we figured out some sensory videos that are on YouTube might be attracting for him. However, I know that, you know, like a screen time is not good for this yes. age, like this age. What should I do at this point? Because he's asking me, like sometimes he point to the tablet yeah. or, you know, like a TV. Well, that's, you know, th- this is one of those um, things as a parent, we have to practice what we preach also, because you're right. If he sees you constantly on your phone, he's going to want to be on the phone or on a a screen more. Um, And to tell him he can't be on it while you're holding it is not a very good feeling for him either. So that is one thing parents have to be aware of how much they're using the screen. And even there's what you're saying right now, if it's going to make him want to use it more. But another thing that is happening is that because parents are so often on their phones and on their own tablets, they're not as engaged with their kids having eye contact. So a lot of times parents will say, I was playing with my kid the whole time, but they're sitting next to their kid and looking at their emails while the kid is playing. And that's very different from sitting with your child, looking at him or her and in actively engaging. So we have to be aware of our own use. And I know you said something about him enjoying it. Now, we have to be aware as parents, um, you have to set limits on your kids, not because you don't love them, but because you know that sometimes they can't control or set limits for themselves even as adults we have a hard time so as your child gets older he's going to like junk food will be very tasty to him he'll get excited about it but you can't just give him all the junk food he wants because he likes it you have to set a limit so even though he might enjoy the screens or enjoy the videos that he you could show him that doesn't mean that's a reason to show him the videos just like a kid might like going to McDonald's every day from the age of two, but you shouldn't take him or her to McDonald's every day because just because they enjoy it. And the problem is once we expose them to certain things, whether it's the fast food or the junk food or to things like videos that have a lot of moving things and lots of colors, then they have a harder time with things that are more simple that actually are more important for them. So that's what I want you to be aware of. You know, parents, they say, well, now my kid wants fast food. What am I supposed to do? And it's a problem that we have to try to not create rather than create a problem and try to fix it. Um, So I would be very, uh, if if you can, almost, he doesn't need any screen time right now. And I know it's not the norm, you know, go, you go to the mall and you see all these kids in strollers and each baby in a stroller is holding 
either a phone or tablet, it's become the norm and that's not good. And just because it's the norm doesn't mean it's healthy. It's very unhealthy. So I would just say if he doesn't ever need a screen right now, you know, and if you have to use the screen yourself less, then I would recommend doing that because that's going to just make it harder for him and harder for you to resist giving it to him. Well, actually, to be honest with you, doctor, I'm actually those type of persons that I try to use as little as possible. Even sometimes I forget to take out my phone from my purse. Good. Even though okay. It, it <laughs> actually is actually it's very necessary for my business, but I try to turn it off. Mm-hmm. And his dad as well, as well as the TV never was turned on. But um, just just some an idea that because he didn't want, you know, like he has started. Um, you know, like inter- to be introduced to the to the food, to the actual food after the after you know, like the breast milk. Mm-hmm. So then he actually got interested. You know, sometimes he got distracted. So I had to sh- like some friend told me that maybe you can show him some some videos. Then he can be distracted and you can give him his food. So I was like, I don't want to have him yeah. like having this type of habit. But at this time, but you don't, you know. But even going yeah. to that, I know a lot of parents they do yeah. that. They Um, They think they have to, again, distract their kid to get them to do something. But that's telling us there's another issue going on. So, you know, so we don't want to solve one problem by introducing a new problem. And I know parents can get so obsessed with, is my kid eating enough or having enough food? But rarely is that going to be an issue. It can become an issue, but parents Mm -hmm. jump to that conclusion too quickly to think, well, he gets distracted while he's eating, so I have to distract him in a way or keep him engaged but it's okay so i mean why not focus on that so what happens when you feed him is it actually been a problem or you just wanted to make it easier well actually it's been a problem sometimes he well i try to make sure everything is in a high chair i brought like a cup of water so he can you know dip in his hands into it so he can get this bag while he's eating because he when i put like if there, if there is like a finger food of course he, he likes it but if some type of food is new for him he doesn't like to eat or you know like and it's been all day that he didn't eat very well so i'm just like oh my god i don't want you to starve and then i have to give you at least something to eat so let me just, you know, like just distract you to give you the healthy food, you know, for your nutrition purpose. So I'm always in a in a battle of, oh my God, this is so bad for you to watch any TVs or mm-hmm. any kids, your babies movie. But at the same time, I'm just like, what else I can do? Like I have to teach you, make sure you have enough nutrition in your body. And I, I'm aware of that because I'm against anyone when they, I see people that are having their babies, like they give them their phones. Mm-hmm. I'm always like, you know, the person who am I aware of these things shouldn't happen. But now I became a mom and I see their struggle. So Sure. I, I mean, it's it's easier yeah. said than done. Yes. from You know, even me telling you just don't use the screen at all. I know it's very easy, but life throws challenges that's different than just looking at it from the outside. But, you know, yeah. even with the eating, I know you're saying he has to get nutrition, but are you seriously concerned about that? Is that something that's become an no. issue? Okay. No, at all. Yeah. So it could be more from your anxiety about him not getting enough food that okay. you're creating more of a problem than exists and feel like I have to do anything. Because in a way what you're saying is, I don't think he should have the phone in his hand, but because there's a crisis, I have to give him the phone to deal with yeah. the crisis. But the crisis is partially created in your head that this is 
something really bad is happening because exactly. he's star I mean, even you said he can't starve which is a very extreme word it doesn't sound like he's close to that point yeah. thankfully but you're already going to that point and creating a disaster and a crisis in your head and at that point then you do anything i mean if you feel like the house is on fire you're not going to be like well we can't walk we have to walk not run you just do whatever you can to get out of there so that's what i want you to realize is that your anxiety about him getting enough food is mm -hmm. creating a crisis that then you're trying to do things that you're saying even yourself oh i'm so against this i'm so against that but you're going against those things because you feel like there's a crisis. So, um, yes, people will give you, and that's what people will tell you, oh, your kid cries too much, just give them a screen and they'll stop crying. And they might, but now you could have a different problem on your hands that you might want to avoid. And so as parents, we have to, as hard as it is, keep the big picture in mind and not get so caught up in the small moment to moment because if the only goal you have is for him to eat food, then yeah, you give him a screen and he'll yeah. eat. But then now you have a bigger issue, which is, okay, now he's going to use the screen more. That's very right, doctor, because uh, as, as you mentioned that, the, the dad also tells me that probably you have the anxiety. It seems like the way that your mom used to actually, mm -hmm. like, you know, <laughs> uh, just, you know, like growing you and your brother and from the memories that I remember and I already shared with him, he says that seems like you do have an anxiety that he has to eat a lot of food mm -hmm. and that's good for him. So I, I truly agree with you. And I, I guess, you know, at this moment, I'm looking at the picture like um, shot by shot instead of looking at the whole story that what am I actually pointing him to. Yeah. Um, the other question I had was um, actually regarding the, you know, like based on, you know, many studies, He's like, you know, like, and also uh, your, your father, Dr. Holakui, also the, he mentioned that, you know, like you have to stop breast, breast milk, you mm -hmm. know, when he becomes 14 months. But this case didn't happen for me because I I saw the need that, you know, like I, I kind of like didn't stop it um, because when I did more studies about it, I was like, maybe it's a heal, you know, is it beneficial for him to have more breast milk? So I'm still continuing it, but still in back in my mind, I'm just like, am I doing something right based on the studies that I'm, I'm actually reading? Seems like it's okay, but sometimes I feel like I don't want him to have type of like addiction of eating or you know satisfaction I say in his mouth based on you know like yeah. um, your father's recommendation. What should I do at this point? What? So how am I gonna decide it? Yeah, well I think you know we can come up with hard and fast rules of a certain time and those can be good guidelines but it doesn't always mean it has to be exactly at that date but what i'm hearing from what you're saying again is that there does seem to be this anxiety and this feeling of almost like you feel like you want to give him something and it's from you and so you want to give and not take away from your son and so again it does sound like putting that limit as much as you think it's because you love him and you want to give to him but I get the feeling from what you're saying that you're, it's more about it's hard for you to do it. You're going to feel guilty or feel bad rather than it's just about what's best for your son. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Well, it's both sides. You okay. know, like, yeah, it's definitely both. You know, like, I always, I always think, you know, humans are different. And I, I was like, I definitely know these are the solid, you know, rules. But sometimes it doesn't work for 
each of us we do have different yes, type of like but i'm getting I'm, yeah, yeah but i'm getting the feeling from you that setting limits is going to be hard for you because you feel like you're hurting your child you should give him what he wants even you said before he likes the videos to me him liking the videos is not relevant you know he can like anything an adult can like the way cocaine feels it doesn't matter exactly. that it feels good to like cocaine mm-hmm. it's bad for you it's not going to be good for you yeah. so you so this is something and it's going to become more and more as a baby it's very easy because you have to give them what they need and what they ask for he wants to get changed exactly. he wants food but as he's getting older one of the roles of a parent is to set limits because the kid can't set limits. You tell a kid, go, you know, bedtime is going to be seven o'clock and they're, you're going to maybe have a fight. Now, there's ways you can deal with it to make it less of a fight, but you can't say, well, he wanted to stay up later, so I don't tell him to go to sleep and he went to sleep at 10 p.m. and now he's tired at school the next day. So yeah. I don't want you to base what you're doing just on him. And it seems like a lot of what I'm hearing from you is that if he likes something good, if he doesn't, then you don't want to do it. And you have to hundreds and thousands of times as a parent tell your kid or set a limit where he can't do exactly what he wants to do, what feels good to him. And that's something that I think I'm hearing from you. Yes, I'm sure it's both people, but your kid is never going to say, you know what, mom, I think it's enough breastfeeding. Let's move on. To him, it just feels good. It feels nice. He's going to always want to continue. The limit has to come from you. If you're waiting for him to be equal partners with you, it's not going to work. Just like bedtime and everything else it's going to become an issue if you can't set the limit for him because he's not going to want the limit so you you actually recommending me or parents that to set up their limits because what i always feel like you know like they do have their own type of work and i need to give the freedom to him i understand sure are good for him i understand but sometimes i feel like you know um, especially when he's tired, he, you know, he doesn't have a bedtime. But to be honest with you, like sometimes when it's seven, sometimes it becomes seven thirty, and he is, he asks me, he requests, let's go, you know, like an SD. Mm-hmm. So I feel like setting on some solid limit, it makes him getting more anxious because I've seen on sure. my family members that you know, like oh, it's seven o'clock, I'm going to count on till mm-hmm. ten, you're going to mm-hmm. go to your room. And the, the kids is now actually in a, is a teenager, and in, you know I see the, the anxiety and the stress they have uh, because yes. of you know parents want to set up those limits and you know be certain about those. Mm-hmm. So you're right. You know. So this is where yeah, as a parent, you have to be um, consistent yet flexible. So mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think sometimes we forget we have a clock that's very much set on. You know, time we look at 7 p.m., but the baby's body is not going to be exactly the same. That 7 o'clock is different than 7.05 or 6.55. So yeah. I'm not saying you have to be so inflexible and make some rules and no matter what, you enforce them and create a war with him because we don't want to create a battle with him either. That's not yeah. good. And even when it comes to bedtime, I tell parents, even when your kids are young, talk to them about it. Don't just say this is the rule. Say what time do you think is good for you to sleep? Create a conversation with them and come to an agreement. And then rather than having a battle, your child and you feel like you're on the same page. So I agree with you. It's not good for us to just set rules because they're rules and to be hard on our kids. That's actually not my approach at all. But we have to be careful. I think more likely for you is that you might go to the other extreme of saying there should be no boundaries or no rules of anything and I'll let my kid figure out everything themselves but even you say that but at the same time with food you're not doing that because you're saying I have to force him to eat or else he won't eat 
right? Yeah, so your husband yeah. might be right and you're recognizing you might have an anxiety there where when it comes to food, you don't let him figure it out or say he'll eat mm-hmm. when he's hungry. You feel like I'm being a bad mom or I need to make sure he grows enough or what if something happens to him. But a lot of those are anxieties that come from older times that probably won't have an effect now. But I think for you, again, yes, being too rigid is bad. But being too in, too um, lax, meaning that there's no rules at all, anything happens whenever it wants to happen, that doesn't give a kid a feeling of security and stability either. So we have to find that balance of having boundaries but not being, again, it's consistent yet flexible, which is it's a gray area. It's not always clear exactly what to do. But I think what I'm hearing from you is your challenge is going to be more about setting the limits that sometimes a kid needs. Again, with screen time, if you give him a screen, he's never going to want to give it back to you. He'll look at it for eight hours a day. And you can say, but he's enjoying it. Won't Shouldn't I let him tell me when he's done? No, you know that he's going to want that too much. Or once he can stop having start having candy and sweets, he's going to prefer having those food than having the more nutritious food. So if you always give it to him anytime he wants it, you're going to create bigger problems for him. So we have to set some limits and boundaries. And a lot of parents, they can have this feeling of, well, if I love my kid, I should give them what they want. And But your role is more to make sure he's okay, even if it means sometimes he's not going to be happy about the situation in the moment. So I, I would want you to think about that more, about sure. setting boundaries that it's okay. It doesn't mean I'm being bad or not loving him. It's part of being a parent is I have to set some boundaries or restrictions because the baby can't. The baby doesn't understand these things. Yes, you're right. Actually, if we let a kid eat when they're hungry, they will do a pretty good job of that. They eat until they're full and then they stop. But with some other things, they they can't, like screen time or when it comes to being breastfed, almost never will a kid want to stop that. We have to set that limit for them. Thank you so much. Sure. I appreciate it. I definitely have tons of questions. I well, Thank you know, you're doing. You know, also you have tons of questions, but I'm sure you're doing so so many great things as a mom too. So remember that part. But I'm glad you called. I uh, hope to talk to you again sometime. Thank you so much, Dr. Fried. I appreciate it. Have a wonderful. You day. have a great Thank day too. Thank time. you. Thank Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right. Going to our next commercial break. Studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So the previous caller, um, she was asking about her baby, a year and a half year old, and and some issues that were coming up with him. And the idea of limits and rules came up. And I did want to talk about this aspect of parenting or some of the aspects of parenting that relate to that and some things that came up in that call. Um, As I mentioned with her, for a lot of parents, especially a lot of moms, and even a lot of Iranian moms that I've worked with, being a mom in those early years or early year, even we can say, is a lot easier for them than the challenges that arise as the kid gets older. Because when the baby is a baby, all you do is respond to those physical needs. And actually, the best parenting is to respond in a very timely way. That's how the child starts to feel good about the world. And even when we look at the first stage of Erickson's, Eric Erickson's development, that hope or that trust versus mistrust, they build that trust in the world and they have hope for the world. So we want to respond in a timely way. The baby needs to be changed. We change them. Baby needs feeding. We feed them. They need to be burped. We burp the baby. We try to meet all those needs in a very timely manner to make the baby feel good. But as a baby gets older and starts to become a young child, 
this is where parenting creates new challenges that can be difficult for some parents. To begin with, one thing that some parents can have a hard time with is, whereas the baby is completely dependent on us before, as the child gets older, it can do more and more things on its own. And one of those first steps is literally a first step as the child can walk. Because this changes things where the child now can actually, first of all, move around on its own, doesn't need you to move, um, but also can move away from you. And this can be hard for some parents. So if you're a parent that wants to have a dependent relationship with your child, these are some of the challenges that you will start to face. And that's something you have to ask of yourself. So when the baby is fully dependent on you, it can feel very good for you. But if you like that dependent type of relationship, unfortunately, what that means is that you're not going to do a very good job of allowing your child to become an individual and to become independent. So sometimes parents will resist this, not in a very conscious way, but they will resist their child's independence and moving away from them. And Eric Fromm talks about in The Art of Loving how true maternal love is to love something in a way that it can go away from you. And I sometimes think of the uh, analogy or example of a, a mother bird, and you've probably seen when the babies start to get old enough that they can fly away, the mother, of course, has been feeding them, bringing back food for them every day, and now finally they can fly away from the nest. And that's the true love. The true love of that mom is to help her child grow so that actually could fly away from her, which can be painful and hard to deal with, that separation, but that's where that true love is. I'm loving you so that you can grow, and actually for you to grow, that means you can go away from me. I have to not sabotage how strong you get so you can't fly away. I want to give you the best I can give you so that you can actually go away from me. And so as parents, and especially as a mother, we have to accept this, that your love is given in a way to make your baby and then child strong enough to be independent and go away from you. But if you are not okay with that, if the child is serving some function for you, then this can mean that you'll have a hard time with this. So as a parent, you have to really think about this. Am I dependent on my child? As my child is dependent on me, am I in some way emotionally dependent on my child and feel like I need him or her to feel okay? And very often, this void can come, of course, from a lot of places, but the void can also be because the husband and wife don't have a strong enough relationship. So the mother can feel very alone because she does not have that connection with her husband. And this is more in traditional families, but we still see it in a lot of families that the husband might be working and out of the home. And if the wife is home alone with the kids, but doesn't get the opportunity to have much else in her life, then there is going to be an emptiness that she will try to fill with the children. So we have to be aware of this. Yes, you're a mother or a father, but it takes a lot out of you. But what am I trying to get from my kid as well? And it can be hard for us to accept this or acknowledge this, but we have to take a hard look at what's going on for us. Am I in some way emotionally dependent on my child? Do I actually want my child to go away? Uh, and by go away, I don't mean we want them to leave, but be strong enough to be independent. And so we see this as the children even get older. I'm going to come back to early childhood. But kids become 18, and I've worked with so many families where the child gets into a university that's maybe even their dream school or school they want to go to, but the parents say, no, you should go to a school here in L.A. where they live. 
not because actually it's better. Now they might convince themselves, oh, I don't think he'll be able to handle it or I don't think she'll like being away. She's going to get homesick. And so we want to protect her from that. But really it's very often more from the parents who feel like they can't handle the separation. They don't want the child to leave. And so as much as we think it's because I love my kids so much, I want them to stay here. It's from our own selfishness, our own dependency that we are not allowing our child to potentially do what's best for him or her. And we have to be aware of that. We are not doing it out of love. We're doing it from something that's missing within ourselves. And when you have a child, it's very much a one-way relationship. Yes, you'll get lots of good feelings and even maybe a feeling of meaning of life and purpose and even lots of joy from being a parent. But really, it's more about you giving to this being and that being gets to grow and then become their own person rather than trying to get something from them. If you're trying to get something from them, you have the intention of parenting a little bit backwards and that's going to be a problem. But so as the child gets older, we have to recognize that we're going to have to start saying no more and not just giving them everything they want. And so we can split parenting or the parents, the parenting we received and the discipline we received in two ways that are kind of extremes. But one is some parents can be too extreme and harsh, and then some parents can be too lax. And as always, as parents, you have to think about what kind of parenting did I receive? Because that's going to affect the kind of parent you're going to be, either by being like your parents again, as many people do, or reacting against that. So sometimes you'll see a, a mom who had very strict parents herself, felt very restricted, felt like she could never do what she wanted to do. She never could enjoy things. And sometimes that mom might become a similar type of mom. So she might learn this is the way to parent and do that same type of mothering to her children. But also often you'll see a reaction to that. She might not be aware of it, but because she felt so restricted by her own parents that she didn't get to enjoy being a child, didn't get to enjoy life, what she wanted didn't matter, she might go to the other extreme and overindulge her child and say, I'm going to give you anything you want every time, no matter what it is, because what you want is important. And of course, what the child wants is important. But when we go to that extreme, we're actually hurting the child more than we're helping them. We're not helping them grow and develop. We're just trying to compensate for something in our own past. Now that you're my child and I want you to enjoy childhood, I'm going to let you play and you never have to do anything. You don't have to ever clean up. You don't ever have to pay the price and any type of consequences or anything. Just I want you just to be free and enjoy yourself. And that type of child actually becomes too coddled and doesn't develop into a strong individual because they live in a world where everything happens exactly as they want it all the time. And that's not the reality of the world. Because slowly as a parent, you're, one of your jobs is to help your child adjust to living in the real world, which means that sometimes things don't always go your way. There are going to be limits. There are going to be consequences. And if we try to remove those because we think, I just want my child to feel good all of the time, we're not going to help our child grow. And we don't allow them to become the strong individual they can become. Sometimes I use this kind of, uh, you can call it a story, but example of how, let's say a mother says, I love my baby so much, I don't want my baby to ever have to walk because I don't want them to have to get tired from walking or they can fall walking. So I'm always going to carry my baby because I love my baby so much. So the baby becomes one years old and maybe could start walking, but the mom doesn't let the baby walk and carries him everywhere. Baby's two, three, the mom never lets the baby walk because she thinks it's out of her love. 
And then even the baby's now 10 years old and the mom could barely carry him, but still she's carrying him because she said, I love him so much. And then now what do you have once the kid becomes 15 years old? First of all, the mom's back is broken from trying to carry the baby all the time, but you have this almost young man who can't even stand on his own two feet, in this case, literally. And how is that loving your child to not allow them to grow? And we have to recognize that that's not because of the child. We're doing that for ourselves because of our own needs and wants. And so as a parent, you're supposed to help your child grow. And so I always ask parents to look at what's happening in the child's life and see, are you intervening to prevent pain that's actual damage? Or are you intervening actually to avoid pain that could come from growth? Because if your child, for example, is studying hard and getting a little bit stressed out about a test, you can support them and be there with them. But to say, you know what, because you're getting stressed out about tests, you don't have to take the test tomorrow. I'm going to write a note to your teacher. And in that moment, that parent might feel very good. See how much I love my kid. I'm taking away his pain. But that's actually a pain that's coming from growing, a growing pain that is actually going to be helpful for your child. So taking away that pain, taking away that discomfort is actually hurting your child. It might feel like love, but if you make the definition of love, removal of pain, and the giving of pleasure, then you're not going to recognize that a big part of love is helping someone grow. And growth is always going to involve some kind of discomfort and could regularly involve some kind of pain, something that doesn't feel good. So as parents, we have to remove this idea that our job is to remove pain only. It's not your only role. Yes, when there's pains that don't need to be there, if your child falls and you pick them up and you comfort them, you clean the cut, you help heal them, that's great. That kind of pain you want to help to reduce and help them. But if your child is facing the consequences of the real world and we think, you know what, even though he didn't do his project, I'm going to write a fake note to the teacher and say, you know, his grandmother died because I love my kids so much. That's not actual love. So as parents, we have to be ready to face this challenge that although when they're a baby, yes, we meet all their needs and really the goal is just about making them feel good and avoiding pain. But as they get older, we have to more accept the idea that part of growing involves facing challenges, not having things always go our way, having limits and boundaries to things that are happening in our lives. And we have to be ready that sometimes we have to disappoint our kids. Your kid wants to play, but it's dark outside. You can't just let him out. Or your kid wants to have candy before dinner. And you know, if they have that, it's going to ruin their appetite. Yes, maybe every once in a while. I'm not saying never, as I talked to the caller before we want to be consistent yet flexible maybe it's halloween or maybe it's some special occasion you give them a treat but we can't just say because he wants this or because she wants this i have to give it to them that's not giving them true love we have to be ready to sometimes disappoint our kids by setting limits and boundaries and as always we can disappoint them but still show empathy say i know you want this i know you really were excited to do this or to have this food or to do this but right now i have to say no and give them the reason and help them understand. So you can empathize and always say yes to the feeling, but you can say no to the request or to whatever it is they want to do or whatever it is they're asking of you. That is okay, and as a parent, you have to be ready to do that time and time again in setting those boundaries for your child. True love involves helping your child grow, not just helping them feel good every moment, every time, giving them everything that they want. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dawakwe. We'll be right back. 
welcome back. Wanted to go to another question from Instagram. This is from Kur de Yoga, which I guess probably is like the heart of yoga. And it was, can we really self-heal? And oof, that's a that's a big question. And of course, sometimes people, when I'm reading these questions, I don't know exactly all of what they mean. There's definitely some um, part of it that's vague as far as the exact question. But can we really self-heal? So I don't know um, if by that she means can we really heal ourselves um, or what that means or can we heal what's happened to us in the past but one thing I'll say is even when I hear self-heal to me it doesn't mean we have to do it all by ourselves and sometimes we think that we have to fix ourselves or we have to deal with something by ourselves if we want to get in shape we shouldn't get a trainer I remember actually thinking that myself I was talking to my brother that I always thought I had to do it alone that I shouldn't get any help from anyone. It means more if I did it on my own. But sometimes we realize that the strongest thing we can do is ask for help. And it still is going to be hard to make real progress or to make a change. Um, but we should use whatever resources we can to help us. There's nothing weak about that whatsoever. So I'm not sure if that's what she meant by the question. But even when I heard or read that question, self-heal, um, it did make me think about how we can try to heal ourselves or help ourselves grow from what we have been through. And it, it leads me to think of what happens in therapy, because in some ways, therapy is a lot of things. But one thing that we can experience in therapy is that we get in some ways the parenting or even the parental love from the therapist or through the relationship with the therapist that we didn't receive as a child or that was missing or the ways that we got hurt can get help get healed through that relationship. I remember one of my first, or I think it was my first therapist, he did say something along those lines that most of the pains we have, and I've read this in other books as well, but most of the pains we experienced or that we carry with us and most of our issues were created through relationships, through our parents or through things that we went through. And so the healing usually happens in a relationship as well. And that relationship can be with the therapist. Now, as I mentioned in the segment about um, screen time or about social media, we also have a relationship with ourselves. And so that itself can be healing also. And so what we need to have is to have a healthy relationship with ourselves, and we even can be that healthy parent to ourselves in a way. So what that means to me, and it relates to the caller I was talking to in the segment I just had, is that if we're going to be a healthy parent to ourselves, that means that first we have to have compassion and love for ourselves and who we are. But then also we can be firm with ourselves in the way that we can try to encourage growth. So we have to have both of those steps. And usually they happen together, but often the compassion and love comes first, or we need to have that first. Because usually when people come into therapy, what I often will see is when they talk about their issues, there's a way they're judgmental about whatever it is they're dealing with. So whatever insecurities, sensitivities, things they've done, whatever it might be, there's usually a judgment that comes with it. And this is one of the things that can be so difficult as human beings, we punish ourselves more than once for the same thing. We might have an issue and that already doesn't feel good, like an anxiety or fear or uh, insecurity. But then on top of that, it already doesn't feel good. We judge ourselves for that. We say, yeah, you know, I, I have a, a fear of this. And I say, hey, it's so stupid. I know. Why do I do that? It's so stupid to think this way. I know it's illogical or I know it's this or I know it's that. 
So we already have a painful feeling and then we judge ourselves for that. It's like if you have a hurt arm and it's in a lot of pain and on top of that you say, yeah, it's so stupid to have a broken arm. Can you believe it? Broken arm? Why would anyone have a broken arm? I'm so weak. I'm so this. I'm so that. And we beat ourselves up about it. So very often our feelings about our feelings or our feelings about our issues can be even more hurtful than the issues themselves. So what we want to try to do is to shift from judging ourselves for having those issues to loving ourselves with those issues or having compassion for that. So rather than saying it's so weak or stupid to have that insecurity, we can shift to, gosh, it must be so painful. I've suffered so much because of that insecurity or it's been so hurtful in my life in so many ways. Or even trying to understand, I can see how I developed this insecurity because of what I went through as a child and it's been so painful. So it's not that I'm to blame for it or I'm somehow bad or not good because I have that insecurity. It's understandable. Having that compassion and that understanding is so important. And to me, that's the first step in healing is to approach it in that way. That's why I think the judgmental style is not going to work for a lot of the issues that we deal with. You usually don't judge your way out of something. And as Carl Rogers said, the curious paradox is only that well, only once I accept myself as I am, then can I change. Only when I accept myself as I am, then can I change. So we have to love and accept ourselves as we are. Acceptance doesn't mean I'm not going to change or I'm complacent, but it means I accept that this is the current me. So first we have to love who we are and what we are. This is what I am. And even a big part of love means knowing. You can't really love something you don't know. This is why sometimes we'll create a relationship with someone and we think we're in love with someone, but we realize actually we're not in love with them because we never actually knew them. Part of it was idealized in our head. So we can think we love something, but we can't actually love something until we know it, which means we have to actually look at what's there. Not some idealized view, not what we want to be. We have to see who we actually are and love that. So here are my insecurities, here are my issues, here are my fears. Of course, here are my strengths too, not just the negative, but seeing all of ourselves. So the first step to healing ourselves is first love, but before we can love ourselves, we have to know ourselves. And this is why I think therapy can be very helpful because it's, to me, always more about self-awareness and about just fixing of problems. But that's what can make it so meaningful is you get more in touch and aware with yourself. Meditation can also be helpful in this by slowing ourselves down and getting more in touch with what we're feeling and thinking, what's really there, and connecting in a deeper level to ourselves. So first is love and compassion for ourselves, but to really do that, we have to know ourselves first. So that's a big step, and having compassion for whatever it is we're dealing with. Rather than judging ourselves for what we are dealing with, who we are, it's to love ourselves for who we are and who, whatever it is that we're dealing with. So that's that first step. Now, once we have that love and compassion, it's not enough. Because what can happen is people oftentimes think we can stay in what we might, we can call a victim mode. So we can pity ourselves. Like, oh, poor me that I'm dealing with this issue, that I'm going through this thing. I have suffered so much. And that part might be true, but we don't want to stop there. Because if we stop there, then we let ourselves off the hook. We say, well, yeah, I went through so much and that's it. But what we want to do is recognize, okay, I've been through so much. I have compassion for that and for what I've gone through. But now it's up to me what I'm going to do with it. 
your childhood was not up to you. What you went through, what you experienced, whether it was abuse, neglect, difficulties, challenges, stresses, you had virtually no control over what was going on then. But what you do with what you've been given, that is up to you. So now as an adult, this is where some of that more tough love has to come in, where you have compassion for yourself, but because you love yourself and you want even better for yourself, you're now going to work hard to make things better. You're not just going to settle with, I've been hurt in this way. I was um, treated in this way or this happened to me. What has happened to you is not up to you, but what you, what you do with it, that is up to you. So now you have to make that decision of how am I going to grow? And of course, things like therapy, again, can be helpful in that growing process as well. But we have to be willing to move forward. And moving forward means a few things. One is very often, first, we have to try to understand what happened. So that awareness again comes into play. Awareness uh, of what happened. But on top of that, we also have to be willing to forgive those people that have hurt us. Very often, uh, if we just stay with the pain and don't try to heal and go forward, we stay in that victim mode. But to get out of being a victim, that means we have to genuinely forgive the people that have hurt us. Sometimes, and very often, this is our parents. And we have to go through that process of giving them forgiveness. Not forgiving them because necessarily they deserve it. Because this comes up a lot when you bring up forgiving people. People think, why should I forgive him or her? They were so mean. They don't deserve my forgiveness. We don't forgive people because of them. We forgive people because of us. I want to let go of this resentment and pain. Not because they are not guilty of doing something or they did what they did wasn't bad, but it's because I don't want to hold on to the pain. It's hurting me. I don't want to hurt anyone. So we forgive them so that we can heal and move forward rather than just about exonerating the person for what they have done. Now, sometimes we can have conversations with the people in our lives and this can help in allowing us to move forward, but very often we can't, whether that person is no longer alive or sometimes people... We know that if we actually have the conversation with them, it's going to hurt more than it's going to heal and help. So we're not going to have that conversation. And sometimes we have to make that decision. You know what? It's not going to help to talk to that person or that person is no longer alive. I have to do this process of forgiveness on my own. I have to forgive them for how they have hurt me. And they can be very powerful if we can do this to genuinely forgive. But it's also a big step in moving forward from healing ourselves from what has happened in our past and recognizing that even with all this, when I even talk about healing something, sometimes we talk about a wound and even if it heals, it doesn't mean it's completely gone. Sometimes it does leave a scar and that might just be what we have to accept. Again, going back to that idea of acceptance because people will come into therapy and say, I have this issue, let's get rid of it. And just like I talked about in the first segment when we're talking about fear of public speaking, if you're waiting for that fear to go to zero, if it's right now at a 10, you're never going to do public speaking because almost never is going to get all the way to zero. It's probably always going to be there. It'll just become less. So people come to therapy and very often they'll say, gosh, I keep talking about the same things. And sometimes it might be their way of saying, how come therapy isn't helping as much as I thought it would? But I'll often let them know that you know, usually whatever your issues are, those are going to be your issues. They can become much more manageable. They can become less. But usually if you're an anxious person, unless you take some really heavy drugs, you're probably not going to be someone who has no anxiety. 
you'll probably always have to deal with anxiety in your life. That's okay. Just like even someone who is an addict. I know sometimes people don't like the label of saying once an addict, always an addict. It doesn't mean you're always an addict, but it is something that you know you have to be aware of as an issue for you. You can't just completely ignore addiction. It's not something you can completely ignore. Whatever it is, gambling, eating, alcohol, drugs, you can't just ignore that aspect of your life or that part of who you have become before in the past. It can come up again. So whatever your issues are very likely, they're going to be your issues. And this is where the compassion comes back into play of realizing, you know what, I'm a human being. I'm going to have issues no matter what. I want to work on them. I want to keep growing as an individual. But to think I'm ever going to be quote unquote perfect or have no issues at all, that's unrealistic. And in some ways, not even natural or healthy. We always are going to have something. It's just part of being a person, just like your physical health. No one has 100% complete, perfect physical health. There's something going on. Cholesterol or some other vitamin is not enough. Pains in this part of their body, especially as you get older, you're going to have lots of pains. And if you expect I have to have perfect health in order to be happy with myself, then you're going to be always unhappy with yourself and unhappy with life. So we have to psychologically have that same expectation. I'm never going to be perfect. I'm not supposed to be perfect. As a human being, I am imperfect, and that's okay. It doesn't mean I'm unlovable and doesn't mean uh, I can't be happy about who I am or proud of who I am. Everyone has issues. So in some way, embracing that is also a part of that self-healing. It's not just healing every wound and healing what we might consider every weakness. It's also embracing and loving ourselves, including whatever insecurities or weaknesses we might see or perceive. That's a big part of it as well. Um, but the process of self-healing, and I appreciate that question that was asked, because I think people are always struggling to get better. We always want to improve. And I'm always very wary of quick fixes, because I know when people, we have these issues and you keep working on them, uh, that's why I think it's important to make that point of likely whatever your issues are will always be issues for you at some level. It could be. Some things do go away, but very often they don't completely go away. So when you hear a technique or treatment or something that says this is going to completely take away this thing that you're dealing with i would always say be a little bit skeptical we all want that quick fix we're just dreaming of that oh i have this issue i wish i just didn't have it at all and someone comes and promises you oh you know that thing you worry about come here for two weeks and you will never worry about it again and it can be so exciting and that magical thinking inside of us that kid inside of us can be so excited and want to believe but i'd say be a little bit skeptical because growth is usually very slow and if it's not slow, usually means something's not right. If someone says, I'm going to help you lose 70 pounds in a week, something's wrong. They're probably going to cut off your arm or your leg or something. But you're not going to lose 70 pounds in a week or a month or something crazy. If it sounds too good to be true, be a little bit skeptical about that as well. Healing takes time. Growth takes time. Especially when we're talking about things you've been dealing with all your life. Almost always, it's going to be a slow process. But if you make that genuine growth and that genuine progress... It'll be more real and lasting and meaningful in that way. So thank you to Core the Yoga, the heart of yoga, for that uh, question about can we really self-heal? It's tough. There's obviously a, a, no quick answer to it either because there's so much involved in it. But we can heal. It does take time, and I hope I provided some uh, ideas of how we can make that happen. All right, going into our last commercial break, studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. For the last segment, I wanted to talk about 
another aspect of parenting. And this one isn't about the parenting itself, but it's about the marriage that two people have as parents. Uh, very often when people have a child, they feel like their marriage goes out the window. There's no more time for romance. There's no more time for closeness. There's no more time to even talk about the marriage. Everything gets focused on a baby. And then if there's multiple babies, there's no time to talk about anything else other than the kids. And so we see it's very common for marital satisfaction to go down with the introduction of a baby. And some of this can make sense, but I think the degree to which it happens, um, parents have a lot more control over and they want to be aware of how they handle this. To begin with, one thing I always tell parents is that even if you're about to have children, treat your marriage as your first child. And by that, I mean, just like a child, which always is going to need some time and attention, you can't completely ignore it or else it dies. Your marriage is the same way. If you ignore your relationship, if you ignore the marriage, your marriage will slowly die. It won't stay alive. A relationship is not something that just you establish and it stays there. It's something that needs to be kept alive. I talked about the analogy of a, the fire on Monday night, but that fire of the relationship, that passion, that love, it has to be tended to. You can't just leave the fire and say, well, we started a fire a while ago and so it should always be there. No, if you don't tend to it, it can either go out of control or it can die, but you need to give it that attention. So Another aspect of this is I always tell parents, because you'll hear this a lot where someone says, oh, the husband is mean to the wife or the wife is mean to the husband, but they'll say, oh, but they're such a good dad or such a good mom. And yes, there's a relationship they create with their kids that can be important. And of course, that's a big part of parenting. But I always say, if you want to be a good father, you have to also be a good husband. And to be a good mother, you have to also be a good wife. Meaning that how you treat your spouse and also the relationship you create with your spouse is a big part of parenting because that creates the environment your children get raised in and also creates the model of the relationship your children get exposed to. If you have a contentious marriage with lots of ugly fighting, well then your children are getting exposed to that hostility, that negativity, that aggression. Or if you have a very loveless marriage, then your children feel that lack of love and that coldness has an effect. And that's another big aspect I should emphasize here because I work with a lot of families that say, well, we don't fight, so everything is okay. And sometimes we use this as an index of a relationship, especially on as an index of how the relationship is affecting our kids. Well, we're not having ugly fights or arguing at all in front of the kids, so that's good. Yes, it's not good to have ugly fights in front of the kids, but oftentimes what these couples are saying is that we're just not close at all to each other. Even I work and have heard of so many families where the parents sleep in separate rooms, they don't even share a bedroom, and they think that none of this coldness and this lack of love has any effect on their kids, when absolutely it does. Children, of course, can feel hostility and negativity and the fighting, but they can also feel the coldness, the lack of love. So we can, in this way, divide marital issues or marital patterns into the hot bad and cold bad. 
So there's the hot bad of the fighting and the yelling and all of the ugliness there. But there's also the cold bad where there's no connection, no love between the parents. And the kids are going to feel that as well. So if you think that as long as you follow all the right parenting techniques and advice, your kids are going to grow up happy and you're doing everything you can as a parent, don't forget how important the quality of the marriage is to the parenting and the environment and the upbringing you give to your kids. It's all part of one package. We try to separate and think, well, I'm being a parent, but no, as a parent, you're also living in a home and creating a home for your child. So parents have to think of their marriage as the first kid. It needs time. It needs attention. And because of that, that means you have to devote time to it. What most families do and most people do, we live our lives and just say, well, what is what's left or what time is there left to do the things? I'll work out when I have time. If you do it that way, you'll never find time to exercise. Uh, I'll meditate when I have time. I'll do community service or I'll read more when I have time. If you wait to have the time, you probably will never find it. So if you do that with your marriage, we'll go on date nights when we have time. We'll spend time together when the time allows for it. You'll probably never do that and it'll become part of the, be put on the back burner. So we have to set time aside. Be like every Thursday morning, we're going to go for a walk and have coffee. Or every other Sunday, we're going to go have dinner together and have your mom babysit so we can go out together and spend that time. But we have to invest the time into the relationship to make sure the marriage stays alive and not forget that that's a big part of being a parent. Um, and also it helps you become better parents because the more connected you are with your partner, the better you'll be able to parent the kids. Because a big issue is that parents are very often not on the same page and don't feel very connected. So what happens is the kids become this big battlefield of competing with one another. When there isn't a lot of love and connection between two parents, they start to use the kids as a way of playing out those different battles of saying who's more right in how they parent, who does things better, or who does things worse, who's the better mom or dad becomes an issue rather than being together on one team. Being parents, raising a family is very difficult. It's very difficult to do when everyone is working together. But when you're not working together, then it becomes even more difficult and almost impossible. And you lead to more stress and more problems in the relationship. So you'll see a lot of families where they're doing things that actually hurt each other and take away rather than helping. It's like we're trying to push a big boulder up a hill. And it's very hard to do it because it's heavy and we have a lot against us because the boulder is heavy and the hill is very steep. But now if some of the time one of the partners goes and starts pushing the other way or one person says, I'm not going to push anymore, well, then it's going to become almost impossible and maybe that boulder rolls back down the hill. So as a partnership, as a family, we have to make sure we're on the same page and working together, that we're trying our best to make things easier for one another, not trying to compete with one another. And if there isn't a strong relationship and a strong marriage there, then it's probably not going to happen. So another piece of advice that relates to this that I give to parents is that you should always be dating. Very often we think dating is something we did before we got married. And then of course now it's over because we have each other. But as much as yes, you've made this commitment to one another, we shouldn't lose that feeling of what it's like to date. And we should bring that into our marriage. And what I mean by that is when you're dating, there's some things that are going on. One is 
you're excited to learn more about one another. And we don't want to lose that. Because as much as you might think, oh, I know him, I know her so well, there's nothing for me to know anymore. This is definitely not the case. Because one, people are so complicated and multifaceted and have so much to share. And also two people are changing and evolving. So even if 10 years ago you knew someone, they'll be a different person now, or at least some things will be different. People are constantly evolving. So we never fully know someone. And I've talked before about this issue that sometimes we do this, we lie to ourselves and together as a couple, we own this lie or this delusion together that we know each other so well that the other person is boring because it's safer for us to feel like we fully know someone. And because of that, I know exactly what they're going to do and what they think and what they feel than to recognize the reality that you never fully know someone, that they are still unpredictable. As much as you know them, you don't 100% know them and you'll never fully know them. But people don't want to live with that anxiety or that fear, so they try to put that away. And that's another part of dating that makes it exciting, is that you're getting to know the person and you like what you're seeing so far, but you're also recognizing you don't fully know them yet. So there is this feeling of mystery or this unknown that keeps things exciting. And in Stephen Mitchell's book, Can Love Last?, he talks about this dynamic, how we trade safety and we accept the boredom that comes with that safety rather than accepting the passion that comes with the unknown. So we give up the passion. So a lot of people will tell you that you can't keep love alive, you can't stay in love. It's because they're choosing to make their marriage boring rather than accepting that they won't fully ever know this person and that keeps it exciting. So that's another aspect of the keep dating, never stop dating, is that I always want to try to understand and get to know my partner more. Just like I know I can never fully know myself, how can I ever expect to fully know another individual? Even if I've been living with them for 20 years, you still don't fully know them. And it's up to us to keep that passion alive by recognizing this, by not losing that excitement and curiosity to get to know that person better. And also when you're dating, you tend to do more nice things for each other. And you'll hear this a lot, especially more from the women who maybe were receiving more gifts or more surprises from their partners in the dating stage, they say, oh, he doesn't do those nice things anymore. And so we should also not lose sight of that, that even if we're married, um, if the genuine feeling is, I love you, then we don't do the nice things just to get the person. We do them because we love the person. Unfortunately, a lot of times people look at dating as a part of trying to get the person to like you, to love you, to commit to you. So because of that, what we're trying to do is do these nice things that we don't genuinely want to do, but we do them because they're going to like them and it's going to make them like us. But we hopefully will have the approach more of because I love my partner, because I love this person, I want to do things that they like. I want to do things that feel good for them and it feels good to me to love them, to show them love. And we don't want to lose sight of that either, that we shouldn't be doing things just to get someone to get them to love us, to get them to commit to us. We should be doing the nice things because we genuinely love them. So we shouldn't have the idea that, well, now that we're married, I don't have to do the sweet romantic things anymore because I quote unquote have them. We always should be striving to be a better partner. And I always tell people in a way you should be going to sleep thinking, how did I do in loving my partner today and showing him or her love? And how can I be even better at it? 
how can I do a better job of loving him, loving her? That's really our responsibility and really a duty we should feel from ourselves, not because they ask for it, not because they have an expectation, but because we love them. And really, we should think of this in every aspect of our life. Also, as a parent, how can I be a better mother or father? How did I do today? How did I do just as a person in general and as a human being in my own life to myself? How can I be better? We should always strive to be better to do more. But very often when it comes to our relationships, once we're married, we think, well, I've already got them. So there's no more point in trying. And this spills over in lots of ways, even in how we look. When you're dating, you make sure you look your best, you dress your best. You might even be working out to look better for that person. But if it's just to get them to like you and once they've committed to you, you think, oh, now I don't have to try anymore. That's really bad. To keep the romance alive, we should be trying to look our best too for each other. Not just look good for other people or not look good when we're only going out, but for our partner. We should care about what they see and what they're experiencing. So as unsettling as it should be, and I'm very big on commitment and we let our partner know we're going to be there for them and that our love is not something that's just going to disappear, but we should still have this feeling of wanting to impress our partner, to look good for them, to be good to them, to treat them well. That shouldn't just disappear because we feel, well, that, well, they've committed to me. Now they're stuck with me. A relationship isn't about being stuck with someone. In essence, every day, even if you're married, you're choosing to be with your partner. And we want to do our best, not because we have to, because they have an expectation, but because we want to be the best we can be for each other. So as parents, we have to pay very close attention to this, that the marriage is not the last priority. If anything, we have to make it the first priority. That's why I say it has to be the first child, the one that's there first, the one we can't neglect. We can't give up on our marriage because if we do, it's going to affect our whole life. It's going to affect how we are even as parents. And to think that you can be a good parent and have a good home with a bad marriage, it's impossible. The marriage is in a way going to set the foundation and create the environment of the whole household. And your kids are like sponges. If you create an environment filled with love, filled with connection and joy and happiness, they're going to absorb that. If you create a marriage and an environment that's full of fighting and anger and negative feelings, they're going to absorb that. And if you create a marriage that's loveless and there isn't love, they're going to absorb that coldness as well. And keep in mind, as I mentioned briefly before, you're creating the model of a marriage for them. You're giving them an idea of what to expect in love, either what they should expect or what to accept in a marriage. And you'll work with a lot of people or talk to a lot of people and they say, I don't really have a good idea of what love will be like because my parents were never loving. I didn't see that they were in love or they were always fighting. So how excited is that person going to be about creating that kind of relationship? So don't forget that part also, that you're creating a model of love, a model of marriage for your kids. That's the marriage they get to see the most closely and the one that's going to affect how they feel about love and marriage the most. So it's a lot of pressure. Yes, being a parent is very hard, but don't forget that part of being a good parent is being a good partner. Having a good marriage with your husband or your wife is a big part of what your kids are going to experience and what's going to affect them in how they grow. So don't forget that your marriage is your first child. You can never neglect that first child and your children, once you have them, will be very grateful for that as well. All right, we've reached the end of 
today's show. I again wanted to thank everyone who sends their topics and suggestions on Instagram. Um, I'd usually do that on Monday night's show, but I keep them to use them on future shows as I did today. So thank you to everyone who sent those. And if I haven't talked about it yet, doesn't mean I might not sometime soon. So thank you again for that. And also the book of the week, I'll announce before I do that, please keep sending me recommendations. I've gotten a bunch this week and last week, so I appreciate that as well. But the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on Monday night's show is Grit by Angela Duckworth. Grit, the power of passion and perseverance. So look forward to finishing that book and sharing it with you Monday night. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show or today's show. Thank you to all the callers and the listeners. Thank you to Amir, who was here to start the show, and Farhud, who was here to wrap it up. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Lakwi. Have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.